Listener Production. Hey there, it seems almost too painful to be possible, but just two weeks out from the 20th anniversary of the Bali bombings, the man who made the bombs could be allowed to walk out of jail. Indonesian authorities claim that Umar Patek has been de-radicalised and is eligible for parole after serving just 11 of his 20-year sentence. It's hard to explain why he didn't get life and why he got a fixed term. The fact that he's apparently done well in a rehabilitation program is easy to understand. It doesn't explain away the fact that he would be released possibly around the time of the 20th anniversary. So, has the Bali bomb maker been de-radicalised? And does that mean he should be walking out already? That is our briefing in the second half of this episode. First, here are today's headlines. It is Tuesday, the 27th of September, and I'm joined by Katrina Blowers. Well, the government has lashed Optus for the massive data hack. What is uh, of concern for us is how what is quite a basic hack was undertaken on Optus. We should not have a telecommunications provider in this country, which has effectively left the window open for data of this nature to be stolen. Yeah, very strong words there from the Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill on ABC's 7.30 last night. She said that for 2.8 million of the people involved... The risks of identity theft and fraud are quite significant because the hackers took license numbers and passport numbers, which amounts to 100 points of ID. Yeah, but the thing is, Optus said that it had stored that data, including the passport and license numbers, because it's a requirement of Australian law. Every company has got to keep a record of those things for up to six years. And I guess, you know, that's that's legally required, not just by Optus, but by many companies. And that's something that needs to be looked at now. Why do companies need to store it for that long if it's used just to immediately uh, verify your identity? Yeah, but I guess the length of storage is is one issue. Maybe it can be shortened, but even for whatever time it needs to be stored, it needs to be stored securely. Yeah, and I guess that is one of the reasons why the government's going so hard on Optus in this case, because, Mm. you know, people with any knowledge of hacking are saying um, it it wasn't just a case of someone going to find the doorway to this information. Optus had left that door wide open. Mm. And the government's even considering big fines for companies like Optus who allow this kind of hack to occur. So they're going very hard there. And Optus are also potentially facing a class action. Um, A well-known law firm, Slater & Gordon, are investigating a potential class action on behalf of all the impacted customers. And the other interesting detail on this story, Katrina, is that Optus have sent an SMS to the worst affected customers wait for it, offering them a free subscription to an identity protection service. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Maybe that Uh, could have been part of the deal in the first place. The federal government is cracking down on the way online gambling companies advertise in a bid to tackle problem gambling. Yeah, so this is going to be a bit like the tobacco-style messages Maybe, I guess, without the gruesome pictures. Anyway, so these changes are going to force advertisers to include pre-written taglines in their ads. Things like, chances are you're about to lose. And what's gambling really costing you? Uh, Another one, imagine what you could be buying instead. 
Yeah. I don't know if these will work. They seem a little bit lame to me, but apparently those pre-written messages have been subject to extensive behavioural research. I think if somebody showed me a pair of Jimmy Choo's and said, you could be buying this instead of betting on the NRL grand final, that would definitely sway me. But I don't know about some of those other messages. And the National Disability Insurance Scheme could soon be expanded to support people diagnosed with ADHD. So the NDIS Minister, which is Bill Shorten, has asked for advice on whether this group should be eligible for support. So this neurodevelopmental disorder is believed to affect at least one in every 20 children. It results in poor concentration and impulse control. There's some new data that's just come out showing ADHD prescriptions have doubled in the last decade. There's actually been a big increase in the number of adults recently diagnosed with ADHD too. Yeah, now this is a really interesting question and it's going to be a big challenge for the government because there's Lots of different conditions that Australians battle with every day, but if you include them all in the NDIS, um, then it's just going to blow out massively in terms of cost. It's already heading for $40 billion a year by 2024, and the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, has said that we need a conversation about how to pay for it, and I guess the thing is they're always going to have to draw the line somewhere, and mm. a lot of these medicines, including ADHD, are actually already subsidised under the Pharmaceutical Benefits Scheme. So we are supporting those people already. The question is, should we be supporting them more with the NDIS? A gunman has opened fire in a school in central Russia, killing 11 children and four adults before shooting himself dead. 24 others, including 22 other children, were wounded in the attack. Yeah, horrific attack. So the investigation committee has identified the gunman as a 34-year-old man who was a former student of the same school. And we've learned that he was wearing a black T-shirt bearing Nazi symbols and the Kremlin have described the shooting as a terrorist act. And just like something out of the movies, probably the worst movies ever made, things like Armageddon, and I know this is controversial, don't look up, I hated that movie. Uh, We are going to find out this morning if we have the ability to nudge an asteroid off its orbit, which could be handy, I guess, if one day there is one Mm. headed for Earth. Yeah, that's a capability I wouldn't mind having. (laughs) So NASA's DART spacecraft which launched in November, is due to make impact with an asteroid at about 9.15am Eastern Standard Time, and Australian scientists are going to be in the box seat. There are multiple telescopes across Australia that will be monitoring the impact when it happens. That's the ANU's Dr Brad Tucker there. So this is kind of cool how CSIRO engineers are going to get to monitor DART's last moments from Western Australia. It's because of the way that uh, that the Earth is positioned. So we get, you know, the best seats in the world to watch this kind of stuff. I love how Aussie scientists and uh, astronomers just luck into this stuff. But get this. The spaceship is only the size of a car. This asteroid is about 160 metres long and they've likened it to being the size of two Statues of Liberty. So it's not going to blow it into pieces or anything. It's just going to knock it off course by about 10 minutes with that orbit. But that could be enough, I guess, if one day it's headed for Earth and we need to do something, anything to stop it destroying Mm. humanity. And those Aussie engineers will be part of the effort to monitor the results over the next few days. So we're going to find out very soon how this all panned out. All right, Katrina, we'll catch you later. I'm about to do a deep dive on the Bali bomb maker. 
The Indonesian authorities claim he's been de-radicalised, so has he? Over the next two weeks, you're going to be hearing a lot about the Bali bombings because we are edging closer and closer to the 20th anniversary on October 12. 202 people died in those attacks in Bali. 88 of them were Australians. Now, in August, news broke out of Indonesia that Umar Batek, the Bali bomb maker, had had his sentence reduced from 20 years to 11 and was now eligible for parole. Why? Well, because he's been de-radicalised. So, we're going to ask, has he actually been de-radicalised? Greg Barton is one of Australia's best-known terror experts. He's a professor in global Islamic politics at Deakin University. Greg, thank you for joining us. Great to speak to you again. Could Umar Patek actually walk free before the 20th anniversary on October 12th? Yes, he could. We've not heard anything more from the Indonesian authorities, but all of the remissions and, and clearances are in place. Um, so from their point of view, he's served his time. Hopefully they'll follow good sense and wait until sometime after the 20th anniversary of the Bali bombing. But his time is coming up, so he will be released at some point. So can you explain the decision in August that was made about his sentence, his rehabilitation and parole? Yeah, to explain uh, why they're talking about releasing this so-called Bali bomb maker, the guy who did a lot of the technical expertise work on assembling that very large um, vehicle bomb, we need to go back to his sentencing. So he was arrested in 2011 and sentenced to a 20-year sentence. Now, had he had a life sentence, we wouldn't be having this conversation. But in Indonesia, 20-year sentences generally get whittled down with remissions to about 12 years. He's been part of a rehabilitation program and all the reports have been very positive and that speeded up the remission process down to something like 10 years. It's hard to explain why he didn't get life and why he got a fixed term. The fact that he's apparently done well in a rehabilitation program is easy to understand. It doesn't explain away the fact that he would be released possibly around the time of the 20th anniversary, but that's a question of sensitivity rather than legal process. I'll ask you more about that de-radicalisation program in just a second, but were there any other reasons why he's being released early? Has he expressed remorse? Has he um, sort of stuck his neck out and exposed other terrorists? Um, what other evidence is there that he's reformed or, or any other signs that justify such an early release? Yeah, justifying such an early release is, is, a, is a big take, but in terms of evidence that he's changed, that he's reformed, that he's stuck his neck out, in the Indonesian context, which we have to sort of read this through, by their measure, he has performed in their so-called deregulation program. He's shown very comprehensive signs of, of um, having turned around. One of the main things which is cited, and this seems hard for Australians to understand, is that he um, now acknowledges that Indonesia is a, is a legitimate state, a republic, and uh, to publicly assert that he takes part in the August 17 National Independence Day celebrations, including the flag raising. Now, that seems to Australians who think flag raising is a bit silly or a bit, bit trite, but in the Indonesian context, he's cut himself off from his former peers. He's come out and said that they're wrong. He's not siding with them, um, that those who would use violence or even just rhetoric to argue against Indonesia being the legitimate um, the, the Republic being the legitimate expression of the independent Indonesian state, those who argue for an Islamic state, that they're wrong. 
Okay, so tell us about the deradicalization program. What exactly did it involve? How intensive was it? Well, the deradicalization program, which is what the Indonesians call it, I, I think it's probably better understood as a disengagement program, disengagement from those social networks that um, involve somebody in violent extremism. That program is run in prison. He's been uh, based in a prison outside Surabaya called Porong Prison. I, I've been there. It's a large walled compound, way overcrowded, but very much functioning like a normal village in terms of human interaction. So in that prison, he was living side by side with people who had been arrested on terrorism charges who were fighting on the Christian side of fighting in Ambon, people who, you know, from a wide range of backgrounds, mostly, uh, of course, people on criminal charges. But this process for Umar Patek has been going on for some years. And evidently, uh, according to Indonesian reports, soon after he was arrested in 2011 in Abbottabad, Pakistan, and then charged and then found guilty and sentenced, um, he's been compliant or at least engaged in this process right through from the whole process. And there have been a string of Jamaat Islamia extremists before him who have done this, and, and they have been used in the rehabilitation program. You know, to put this in context, Tom, um, we've got to ask ourselves the question, we can be cynical about this process and we certainly regret mm. people like Umar Vatek getting out when we're looking back 20 years on a terrible tragedy. But is it better the Indonesians try and do this or would we rather say let's lock these guys up for life and forget about it? If you can rehabilitate the individual, not only do you save them, you to some extent save their community. If you don't break that cycle, um, you're going to have more trouble down the road. And that's certainly the case. The Indonesians have arrested probably 2,000 plus people on terrorism charges. Most of them charged. Most of them go into prison, serve some years, come out. If you're not doing more than arresting, then that problem's going to carry on and, and the police themselves would acknowledge that. So you're saying, Greg, that in in your opinion, and you've travelled to this prison in particular, you've spoken to a number of former terrorists, you think this program actually works and that this is the right thing to be releasing him at this point or are they two separate things? They're two separate things, but they're certainly closely connected. First of all, there's a number of programs. The program in Porong Prison is probably one of the more developed programs that, that run around Indonesian jails. And the fact that the Indonesians still refer to this, this is just perhaps bureaucratic inertia as DRAD, as de-radicalization, suggesting that the program aims at cognitive de-radicalization. I, I think that's the one, wrong way to frame it. I think the what they do and what they should express is, I think the communications is part of the problem here, what they do is try and disengage somebody from their former extremist networks and reintegrate them into family and society in a, in a healthy fashion. I mean, after all, a whole notion of, of justice is based not just on retribution but on rehabilitation, and we do that last part pretty poorly. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you, you make a very good point. Of, of course you want to try and rehabilitate people, but as you touch on, a sentence um, really has several elements, and, and one of them is punishment. And so you, no matter how well rehabilitated someone is, it doesn't necessarily justify releasing them nine years early on a 20-year sentence, which many argue might have been too short in the first place. Yeah, look, I, I think that's that's a really big one, and I don't understand why Umar Patek got a, a fixed-term rather than life sentence. Um, I certainly think, in general, it's good that Indonesia is backing away from the death penalty. It was used with three of the Bali bombers. It's been used with Australians caught on on drug charges, and it's really deeply regrettable. I don't think that's helpful for anyone. It closes the door to not just individual but collective uh, rehabilitation. And I think, therefore, if you're going to go to the idea that 
there's a possibility of remission for, for good behaviour and you can put somebody on a parole programme post-release, then you have to engage with the fact that people don't serve a full fixed sentence. That's what happens in Australia. It just seems like this is too short for Imapatec, but that's a sort of a personal emotional response. I think the more important thing is that the checks are in balances in place that he doesn't do any harm, and I think that's mm. clearly the case. Yeah, Greg, it was interesting you mentioned the death penalty there, and I think actually what makes this story pretty hard to reconcile for a lot of Australians is that when... You know, we had two Australians executed for trafficking heroin. They'd spent 10 years in prison, showed really strong signs of rehabilitation. They were doing amazing work in the prison, uh, Myron Sukumaran and Andrew Chan. And then after 10 years, they were taken out and shot dead by a firing squad. But you've got, you know, the Bali bomb maker, part of an attack that killed 202 people, spends 11 years in jail and then is allowed to walk free. Well, for a start, Tom, you know, they is 280 million people. I don't think they all have the same view. <laughs> I, I didn't know Andrew or Myron, but I do know, uh, as a good friend, Matt Norman, their colleague, who confessed to being part of a plot to bring drugs back to Australia. Matt got a life sentence, um, got 20 years initially, but it was contested and ended up with life, which means he's still in Probokan prison, serving for the rest of his life. So I think... Um, the death penalty is wrong in, in principle and in practice, and certainly in practice in this case. And uh, I think when you contrast the guy who did the assembly work on the Bali bomb, the real technician who, who may have been critical to his, that bomb's success technically, uh, walking free uh, with these other lives, um, there isn't justice there in, a, in an absolute mm -hmm. sense. But that's true of all justice systems all around the world, including in Australia. It's a very mixed result. But are the results more mixed for Australians than Indonesians? I think that's the underlying concern here, that they're treating Australians more harshly than their own. I don't think that's the case. I think what is the case is that they've gone on this war on drugs approach, which, you know, that framing, of course, just like war on terror is a bad way to frame a, a wicked mm. problem. And they got very mixed results. I, I can understand the problem that Indonesians see they have with, with drugs, particularly amphetamines and other drugs that can be really destructive. I can see why they want to be tough. I don't think this simplistic tough approach is the most effective approach. I think if they spoke more about rehabilitation and the hope to break the cycle of addiction and save lives, that would be such a, a much more compelling story as it is with terrorism. Okay, Greg, so we're about to hit the 20th anniversary of the Bali bombing. Are we in a safer position now? What is the, the current threat posed by Islamic extremism in Indonesia? This problem is resilient and hasn't gone away. So we don't want to be complacent and say, you know, there will never be a large-scale bombing like the Bali bombing. There certainly, well, could be. It's technically possible. But uh, in response to the Bali bombing, pre-existing friendships between the Indonesian police officers and particularly Australian federal police, you know, who do the international liaison work, these friendships meant that within hours, key Australian personnel were on the ground in Denpasar, going through the post-blast forensics. In fact, they got there just in time to stop the local fire squad coming and hosing things down and priests being called in to send away evil spirits. Very understandable culturally, but hosing down the blast scene would have lost chemical traces and other vital clues. Those vital clues led them to identify an element of the vehicle chassis with with its owner, last owner, Amrozi. They arrested him and his friends. They found out about this terror network. They realised they had a big problem. They worked with Australian Federal Police to set up a specialist counter-terrorism unit, a special detachment, detachment 88 as they call it. And that uh, special counter-terrorism detachment 
over the last uh, 18 years or so has arrested over 2,000 people, most of them with enough clear evidence and enough clear court process to be convicted, to be formally prosecuted, to serve time in jail. Each year there are still hundreds of terrorism suspects being arrested, which suggests that it is a very difficult problem. But they've basically got the problem down to the level where they've contained it. There could have been many Bali's. Indonesia could have been tipped off the path of democracy. There could have been much more chaos and, and violence all around. That hasn't happened. And, and it's largely because of this cooperation. That was Greg Barton, Professor of Global Islamic Politics from Deakin University. And as you heard there, very deep knowledge of Indonesia, its culture, its legal system, and particularly the work that's been done on terrorism. I think even after that explanation from Greg, a lot of us in Australia still be scratching our heads at what justice actually means in Indonesia. But really good news there at the end of that interview, as Greg was pointing out, that the terror threat has been reduced over time since the Bali bombing due to the hard work of Australian and Indonesian police. So I guess that is one good thing as we head into this moment of reflection on an enormous tragedy. Listener.